You're listening to the Driven by Design podcast. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and today I'm talking with Ronnie Peters. Ronnie is from 360 Design. He also works with Hyperloop Transport Technologies and the Hermes Project. In today's podcast, we're digging into how the future of transport is changing. And we also, we don't just stick at transport, we go think of systems and how we're making sure that we're building a new framing for people, new opportunities. We also look at some of the buts, some of the things that are going to hold us back that need the entire systemic approach to, to the journey experience that people are having with transport. Because one of the things that we know with these new transport models is they can get us from point to point. But Ronnie's concerned with the first mile and the last mile. We spend quite a bit of time talking about that. We recorded this in November 2019 and uh, there was reasons why we had to delay it for a little while. But some of the references that we had now seem quite dated because in a short four-month period, we've seen Hong Kong change from being concerned about, about protests and violence that settled down and we've now gone and seen that they're concerned about the coronavirus. Two impacts in a society that have tremendous economic impact, social impact, and gives us an idea that there's so much to solve. And joining me is Ronnie Peters. Hi, Mark. How are you? Look, Ronnie, I'm fantastic. Now, Ronnie, I'm going to get you to help me out with the you know, name, rank, serial number because you've got an interesting cluster of titles. Most importantly, you've got your 360 design title, um, which you're the, the head, the founder, the main man there, but you also wear a couple of other hats as well. I'm also at Hyperloop Transportation Technologies as the creative director uh, and under my role at uh, 360 Design and working on a number of other related projects as well. Okay. Now, listen, is Hyperloop Transport Technologies being such a leading edge organization, there is no way on this planet that Ronnie is going to be able to speak in any particular detail about what's going on there. And I've probably, there's probably writing instructions as well, which is nobody can represent the company. So we're not going to go into that sort of detail. What I want to do is talk about trends and future of uh, sure. with you. So listeners, Ronnie and I have uh, been talking over the last last month about the future, future of transportation. And in particular, we've been talking about this idea of the door-to-door or desk-to-desk transportation rather than airport-to-airport or train station-to-train station. And and that to me is a really interesting idea because I know I've just flown in from uh, Hong Kong to New York and the time that I was meant to be at the airport wasn't the cutoff time for the baggage to be checked in. It wasn't the cutoff time at the gate. I was told the time that the plane was going to depart which seems to me crazy because it's not actually the time that you're required to be there. Exactly. Yeah. And so if we start if we start off with you know and I think uh, you were talking Ronnie before about the idea it used to just be so hard to make a vehicle that could transport people and then the fact that we got it that there was going to be a time to de- for it to depart and for a time to arrive was a mere miracle right but that's not how we live our busy lives these days is it it's not at all and we've added so many different layers especially in the post 9-11 world where for airline transportation having to go through security all of these additional things and the airline's not really thinking about the passenger they haven't taken all of that into consideration that they've really bottlenecked and created um, 
a much worse travel experience. And so what I'm concerned of about and what I'm really looking at and what we're working on is uh, the first mile and the last mile as well as the point-to-point transportation. So what I'm interested in knowing is, well, at what time do I actually need to be at my front door of my home or do I need to leave the office to get into the Uber, the taxi, the subway, however it is that I'm actually getting to the airport and that that passenger is taken care of and thought about from the passenger perspective and also how they get to their end destination. And and yeah. I think and I think that the, there seems to be a license that's been given to transport operators that because of this need for security that it's okay for it to be a dehumanizing experience which is there's no service level performance because it's security and so last night I, when I came in, it was about 11.30 at night at JFK. I get through the automated passport area. I get my ticket and I go stand in the queue and there's no officers to go actually do that last little bit of checking and there's all these people standing there. But it's, just waiting. Yeah. But, but nobody can complain because that's the, oh, this is security. We don't want to see you arc up. Right. But this is absurdity of... The human was missing, but nobody was actually too concerned about it. Yeah. And and so I think we've seen in Hong Kong in the last week with the escalation that had been happening in a dehumanised situation, a former police commissioner came in and then went and spoke to the crowd in a human way and there was a massive de-escalation that took place because it, it brought in the humanity of the circumstance. Right. And I find that... Our future transport needs to get rid of the default position that security is a dehumanized process. That, like, that's one experience later that we've yes. got to get to. Yeah. Because you arrive at the airport and they treat you so beautifully, Mr. Bergen, you've got a nice, uh, you know, you have some sort of flight membership club entitlement here and there's a different line that you can go in. And then you all get put through this same sausage mincer. Right. We all get on the same plane at the end of the day. <laughs> and, right? and, and, it's like... But it's, it's such a terrible experience. Yeah. So I suppose then... If you're thinking about, you know, a couple of the projects I know you're involved with where you've got one which is people getting in a tube which is most akin to being on a train. Um, You've got people getting onto an aeroplane, which uh, listeners will get into a bit more detail about uh, about the flight project there. But one of them naturally has you must go through security checks and the other one doesn't. So, so you know, it's going to be an interesting stage to say how do you go get a seamless experience with expected times because they know the expected times because they're trying to go get the planes to depart. Right. So it just is it's not declared. And I suppose that's the part that we haven't worked out is a normalised security clearance and passport clearance as against an abnormal one. We don't have that customer service expectation yet. Right. And that the airport um, not only needs to be prepared from the... um, uh, perspective of a flight being delayed or flights, multiple flights arriving at the same time, they need to be completely tied into that situation. I, I recently took an international flight into um, Newark and it was delayed. And so when we arrived, they weren't expecting that many people all at the same time. And so there were just massive lines up while we just waited for like two passport control people to clear our plane and whoever else had arrived at the same time. 
there's no reason for that to be a situation. As you said, they've, they've completely separated the airline's responsibility and experience from security. And yet those things should actually all be like and, part and, of one experience and tied and, and together. And what's interesting is the security clearance and passport control is a fee-for-service uh, element of your ticket. Yet globally, the way that passport control is run is it is a privilege that we are letting you into the country and it's a privilege mm. that we're reviewing and saying, but I'm paying for this clearance. Right. And and so I go back and I, I look then at um, uh, there's a really smart, startup in Australia called AxiChain, which is using blockchain to go deal with um, how do you move freight around. Hmm. And one of their biggest problems is a particular set of documents that comes out as far as um, biosecurity releases for um, certain food products. And the organisation that does it works nine to five, Monday to Friday. Great. <laughs> so if you've got oysters that are needing to be flown out of the country and that form isn't done right on a Friday afternoon, that shipment is wasted. Yeah, you're done. Yeah. And, and so you've got an interesting mix where it doesn't matter whether it's actually the future of transport of people or the future of transport of goods, we know that there's a whole range of relatively low-hanging fruit to go and actually clean up the process. Right, yeah. But then, but then I suppose we get beyond the low-hanging fruit, which is really just negotiation through bureaucratic systems, and we start to get into, well, how can we actually change people's lives and make it for the better? So I'm going to put a couple of guises here. One is I want to focus on how it makes a better future for, uh, for people as they're travelling. We'll look at a couple of scenarios there, but I also want to go look at from the design in the boardroom. There must be CEOs that are going absolutely crazy. You know, the CEO, she's got a um, a bonus that she has to get to, and that bonus is based on you know on time delivery of passengers, mm -hmm. and they've got these things that are outside their control, which are meaning that they're missing their budget. They can't be happy about that in the boardroom, and that must be being referred down to. Well, can we design this system better? But if it's getting to a bureaucratic layer, which is a magic black box, which is this is meant to be dehumanized, there's not much control. There's no agency. Right. Well, and the airlines are competing with each other. They're separate from the airport, right? And so what incentive do they have to do an end-to-end -end passenger experience? Is that really in their best interest? Is that really going to make any difference at the corporate level? because it means they're going to all have to start collaborating, cooperating with each other, and they've got to think beyond their own organization and the piece of the equation that they're responsible for, which is why we're in this dilemma right now. Mm. And I know I was with um, uh, an architect in Shanghai a couple of weeks ago, Eva Wang, mm -hmm. and she was, she'd been working on the terminal um, digital signage program program for JC Deco, mm -hmm. and it was how do you actually make sure that people are able to move through the airport and go pick up the messaging that's there, mm -hmm. which obviously they're thinking advertising. Right. But that signage system has to also do with the cadence of how fast people are moving through, and if you're giving them dwell time on screens, they're going to slow down, which means that you've then lost some of the throughput capacity at the airport. Yes, yeah. Um, you've got an economic interest by 
by the airport and JCDCO to make sure they're getting maximum dollar for uh, for the eyeball exposure that's in there. Right. But you've also got to go make an experience which is edifying. And I've got to you've got to think about that, which is there's kilometers of digital signage, but then there's little screens that tell you when the flight flight is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and so I see this whole immersive future of is the airport basically one huge digital display mm. and it's got some awareness of where I am because hopefully they're doing some Bluetooth sniffing and they know where I am in the airport. Right. And the things they're putting on the displays are actually relevant to me yeah. and my flight needs. And, and whoever else is there and could we filter out all of the irrelevant material, all the gates that don't have flights leaving for hours and, and all of the other extraneous information that's there and just make it tailored to you and to your experience all the way down to, uh, as you said before, I need to know when I actually need to be at the gate. You know, don't tell me when the flight's leaving and the door is closed because that's too late. But Mr. Bergen, uh, you've got five minutes and it usually takes about three or four minutes to walk to that gate. You're in good time, but don't stop at duty free, right? And, and How do you communicate that? And so I suppose there's this, to get this future of transport working, some of those elements of privacy, which um, I think I'm on the record where I think we're actually locking down systems that may be useful to me. You know, if, yeah. if I if I've turned up to the airport lounge and I've shown them my ticket and they ask me to scan my phone at the time using NFC or a barcode, you know, on a um, a WeChat or something barcode scan, and they could match my Bluetooth ID in with there, and they know I'm still in the lounge, they know where I am in the airport. Please come and find me because I don't want to delay 300 other people who are trying to fly for, out of the airport. Yes, yeah, use and that information wisely to for me to get to where I need to go, plus all the other things I might want to do along the way. Yeah, so there's a, there's this compact, which is, do you want to opt in so that we can make it a better experience for everybody? And I suppose that's probably where we're getting into this better future element, which is how do we begin to opt in to using my information for mine and collective benefit because at the moment we're all frightened of the um, Cambridge Analytics, big data, no control, no sovereignty. Until we go and sort out some of those issues, we're not going to be able to go create that better customer journey and a better future for everybody because sure. one late person delays everybody on the plane, which delays the terminal, which delays the outbound flights, which delays the inbound flights. You know, the knock-on effects are fantastic here. Yes, yeah, and so to a point where... You know, when I arrive at LAX and I now need to catch an Uber to my office, that that piece of the equation is part of this intelligence, that the number of incoming flights is communicated somehow forward, that we know exactly or approximately how many people are going to take Ubers versus taking taxis versus taking other public transportation, and that there are enough of that infrastructure in place for these number of people who are actually arriving there. So if we were to, you know, take Hyperloop transportation technologies as an example and say we built a route between New York City and Boston and suddenly we're offloading 20, 30,000 people per hour in downtown Boston, but now the, it takes me an hour to get from downtown Boston to my meeting but it was a 26-minute ride from New York City to Boston, we failed. We haven't solved the whole mm. issue that you're talking about, which is 
when do I leave New York City? What's the most uh, pragmatic and the best way to, and when do I need to leave home to get to Grand Central or wherever, wherever I'm going to pick up the Hyperloop capsule from to get to downtown Boston to then get on to my final destination? Because we failed if we've just done the point-to-point transportation. That might be fabulous, but then if we've just created another bottleneck at the other end, it hasn't solved the passenger experience. And and so that first mile, last mile, as it's referred to, which often isn't a mile, but we know the concept right, right, behind yeah. it. But I remember a couple of years ago we had the New York Design Awards. It was just after Thanksgiving, and the courier that was delivering the trophies for the awards carted the venue rather than actually dropping them off. And that meant that when the award ceremony took place, that the trophies were in New York, but they weren't in my hands, but they were the next day. <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 try, trying to locate the van that had the trophies. Right. Or the drop-off point where they left them that I was meant to pick them up the following day was impossible. And so you can be so close but yet so far. And I know there's a lovely thing that the Navy talks about time in metres. So if a ship has left the dock, after one second it's one metre away. After two seconds, it's two metres away. Right. So Navy people aren't late because the boat's left the dock. Right. You can't get on it. And yet things like construction sites will be forever late because of a delivery that wasn't or wasn't made, a factory downstream or upstream, sorry, that hasn't delivered something. And we seem to accept that that, that that's okay because we got that big piece of technology, the train or the plane, it went between the hubs on time, it really doesn't matter about the logistics of delivering the service, right. a complete service. Yeah. I worked with um, SAP a few years ago and we were looking at the entire supply chain management uh, all the way to the consumer at the drugstore buying a tube of toothpaste and going all the way back to the raw materials that went into the packaging, that went into the product itself, to the manufacturing process and all of the different steps and how to bring greater efficiencies so that the drugstore isn't overstocking toothpaste and they're certainly not understocking toothpaste and how do we get that streamlined and and looking at that whole process. So you know, that was the study. The technology to do that is there in the sense that we have the AI, we have the intelligence, we know where all of the different moving parts are. And I guess it's a question now that we play catch up. Same thing at the airport, same thing with the passenger experience. The pieces exist, but we now need to string them all together and make sense of them. And I suppose it was because of the duration of the flight from Hong Kong yesterday and also the time of day that I arrived. Yeah. I was well and truly aware that we touched down at just on 11 p.m., but I got to my hotel and into my room at 12.50. Now, that doesn't feel to me like I've arrived in New York right, at right. 11. Still got two hours. I've got two hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was moving fast. And so I suppose the, the vision for 
and, and listeners, I'll, I'll come in with this bit about there's a, a project that, that Ronnie's been doing some work on, which is a plane that travels at five times the speed of, uh, the speed of sound, which is a Hermes, Hermes, yes, Hermes yeah, it's a startup. And so if you go think about planes which are now travelling, the Concorde only ever travelled at 1.25 mark, this is going at, at five mark, uh, means that that two hours is now the most substantial part of my trip. Right, right, exactly. And, and so yeah. it's an absurdity that the um, loading and offloading takes longer than the actual trip. Right, right. So there's a need to dramatically improve this because one of the great things about rail is, and you know, you can get on a train downtown, you can get off a train downtown. Um, you're going to find that the Hermes project still has this two-hour dilemma uh, before and after. Right. And often it's three hours before because you've got to have some wait time at the airport. Yes. So yeah. you've got five hours and yet you're on a one-hour flight and you've gone across the country. If you did um, Heathrow to JFK, it would be about, a, I believe, about a 90-minute uh, journey. So, you know, an hour and a half on a plane. But as you say, you could spend two hours going through security two hours to, to the gate yeah. to get on the aircraft. And, and so there's, there's a complete absurdity right. in, in the pace of things. And, and that's where people begin to say, oh, this just doesn't make any sense. And I'm not sure the startup investors in Hermes are going to be happy that the adoption delay is because of factors that are beyond their control. Hopefully by the time it's airborne, some of those have been smoothed out somewhat. But yes, yeah, exactly. And, and I suppose then that, uh, that takes a lot of imagination. I know when I was in government and we were looking at digital transformation, mm. it can take a decade to go do transformation in government. You know, there may be laws that need to be changed. Mm. I think particularly if we go think of airport security in the post 9-11 uh, scenario, and then following up with the London bombings and uh, trying to avoid Al-Qaeda and, uh, and ISIS has meant that they've just stacked on all of these conditions and layers which fundamentally are in many ways no longer required and, and haven't been proven to be required for quite some period of time. And, uh, and I suppose, you know, we, we won't be far away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Right. And so 20 years later, you're still using security procedures that were germane or relevant at the time that that incursion began. Yes, yeah. But really the week after. Right, right. Were they ever going to try and strike the same way again? And, and so these are very complex conversations, which is we're trying to manage an efficient user-led society, not a at all costs in all circumstances. We, we understand that there's a certain amount of risk balance that goes on but I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say maybe we should relax some of the controls at airports because maybe we're over-choking it. Right, right. And and again, going back to your point of artificial intelligence and, and other factors and things that could be actually put into play to make that process faster. Like right now that it's it's so analog, it's such a manual process that we actually have to go through. And what are some of the things that we could do to speed it up even more? Um, you know, we've got TSA pre now at the airports and the dilemma there is it's a catch-22. So more and more people are signing up for TSA pre and the TSA pre line now can be longer than the actual regular check-in, right? So everyone's signing up to this 
new way or what was meant to be a faster way of going through security. But in the end, if everyone signs up for it, it's no longer going to be the solution because they haven't actually sped up the actual steps that you have to go through, aside from the fact that you don't take your shoes off and maybe you can leave your laptop inside your bag. So I was in, um, in Shanghai a couple of weeks ago, yeah. as I mentioned, and at the train stations, every subway station has three guards and a uh, a scanner, oh, sorry, first an X-ray machine and then scanners to go actually stop terrorism-related payloads going into the subway system. But every not everyone system. has to go through it. Everyone. Wow. For wow. every train passenger on every journey, and it flows. Interesting, yeah. And what's interesting there is that you're going, hmm, is that window dressing? or is it an efficient system, but this is the entire population, 24 million people who are on the subway all day. So you've got to go think that seeing it's such a uh, primacy on travelling on the subway, mm. they must be doing 12 million trips a, a day and those 12 million trips are all scanned and there isn't the pre-TSA and TSA in a normal. Yeah. It just flows. It didn't feel dehumanizing it just was something it was very efficient and and you went through it now there are a couple of things if you had a small handbag you didn't have to do it if you had a backpack with you you did so already they've split off some of the some of the audience there and said okay we've we've got different controls but i was interested to go see just how much they were able to get through by taking a slightly different approach. And so that's going to bring me then to then talk about another project with you, which talks a bit about privacy and data. Mm. And that's the K9 DNA database that you that you got involved with. Right. So there are two projects there. One is uh, Darwin's Arc, uh, which was is with the Broad Institute at Harvard and MIT are funding. Um, and the other is the Dog Aging Project with uh, Washington State University. So what, what interests me about animal data uh -huh. is animal data doesn't have the same hysteria about privacy and insurance companies knowing about me and that I'll then be cast out and never be able to go have a dog again because of something. Right, right. So, so, so the paranoia isn't there. Yeah. And... Yet we know that a tremendous amount of knowledge is being built up, new knowledge, because we're getting deeper data in there. And so that goes back to that thing about I want to be in the airport and I want you to know where I am so that I can collaborate with my fellow passengers. We've got to release some privacy hysteria because it actually, what we think is privacy isn't privacy. Right. We know there's no discussion about the idea of the collective benefit of having some shared knowledge. Yet we all enjoy things like traffic predictions. Well, that's coming from collective knowledge. Yeah, ways. Yeah, you know, there's lots of ways that we're seeing this coming together. So when you were when you were doing those projects that were collecting data about people's animals, mm. did you hit any um, use cases or any challenges that were, but People were taking human privacy concepts and trying to apply it to their dog? Uh, it's so far not that I know of. So these are both ongoing projects. Uh, Darwin's Arc is um, a project, I think we're up to somewhere between 20 and 30,000 dogs in, in the program. And we are mapping the genome against dog behaviors, traits, and characteristics. And what that means is 
my job as uh, the designer is to create a user experience. It's a kind of a B to C. If you think of the scientist as being the B part of it, and the dog owner as being the you know the customer side of it, and we need to create an experience that's absolutely engaging, delightful. Um, that people want to be a part of this program because it's not just about getting the DNA sequence and it's a one-time thing. This is about, over a long period of time, answering detailed questions about Scruffy's behavior, Scruffy's interaction with other dogs, Scruffy's eating habits and patterns, any illnesses, diseases, trips to the vet, this kind of thing, and being able to then map those and compare those against other dogs, other breeds, other dogs in the program and the um, and and yeah, what we're working on. So you've got a great example there of where behavioralist data mm. can then help inform future decisions, inform um, therapies and methodologies that's been used at the um, clinical service side for, for vets right. as well, help owners. But it's the collective knowledge that winds up actually being useful. So if people aren't prepared to surrender that knowledge into a collective system, yes, yeah. then the artificial intelligence, those models aren't able to be produced Therefore, we don't go into a better future together. We actually stay with the old knowledge, which probably some of it goes back to Charles Darwin and Galapagos Islands and very old turtles, which really isn't using our best capacities, is it? It's not. And so, to, you know, back to your question, the original question, what we are finding is that uh, dog owners uh, will really open up about Scruffy. They'll tell you everything. It's just like there's no there's no threat to that. In fact, there is a want and a need because you realize the more I contribute to this program, the better the knowledge that will come out of it, the better chances are that um, medications or advice that I can get will actually help my dog's comfort and longevity. So there's really nothing for the dog owner to want to not share when they're being ask questions which is very different from yeah, which is yeah, very different than and and, and i think i think it would be fair to say that um on all measures the american health system is um it's not even broken it's just systemically flawed in many ways <laughs> in many ways <laughs> and so it's going to be the idea that that innovation for a better future for public health care being led out of the states is very low but places like the Scandinavian countries, um, uh, Northern Europe of Germany, um, even the UK, if they can hold themselves together, will be that those countries will be able to go and actually show innovation of collective data, um, the benefits that come by actually sharing and growing expert systems. Yeah. And then there's a catch-up phase for people who are saying, well, our cost to care is so much higher in the States. But definitely I'd be uh, going and looking at Asia or Europe where that health innovation is going to come from. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, it's there. It's so complex and multi-tiered here and, um, yeah. So, Ronnie, it's been really good to be able to go and explore how you know some of these systems work, where they may head for a better future for us, some of the aspects that are about where the dilemmas are. You know, if our CEO, if she's going to get the get her bonus and is going to be happy, she's got to work out some of those systems that she doesn't have control over, 
and make lobbying representations to them. But listeners, what I hope we've been able to go do is actually walk around some future of projects and realise that there's still a huge amount of systemic innovation that needs to take place. It's not just about technology. It's about user experiences. It's about mm. if we can't go get my boarding pass right on current planes, which is known dilemmas, how are we going to actually work out how to make it a door-to-door system? Right. So for anybody who's working out there and is trying to go and actually build that next generation, keep reminding everybody that we've probably got 30 steps until we get to that system and you better start working on them. So. <laughs> I think that that's really relevant. But I, And I'd also like to throw in, it's not only fixing things that are broken, but I think it's the massive opportunity for new ideas and new things that we can do. And if you look at Hermes, it's an aircraft that flies so fast that um, structurally to put windows into it is impractical. So you've got an aircraft that might seat 20 to 30 people in, in the interior, but you don't want to create a claustrophobic box, right? You want to create an environment that actually might be enlightening, that actually might be educational, that might be soothing, that could be all kinds of different things. And again, we have the technology to be able to do that with digital um, same thing with the Hyperloop capsule. Clearly, it's inside a tube. There are no windows inside there. So how do we actually create an environment that could be customized and tailored to the person's delight, to their needs if they're on business or if it's grandma with the kids or whatever the occasion is, it's the sports fans going to the Yankees game or, you know, you name it. But there's, but there's no reason why we need to wait till those innovations come in you know I, I flew here in an aircraft during daylight hours for 15 hours yeah. and the blinds were down the whole the time, whole time yeah. so I was in a claustrophobic environment right where I didn't have a chance to tailor my own experience and I think you know there's a an interesting project that's come out of London with uh, Benjamin Herbert at Leia mm-hmm. where he's come up with a um, electrically stimulated seat to go and change your posture yeah very interesting project there. The idea that the screens that we've got can go give us some AR or VR perspectives that we're in control. There's a lot that could be done in upgrading the in-cabin experience before Hyperloop is in the market, before Hermes is in the market. I suppose the issue is, are the airlines in, encouraged to go and do that or are they actually just thinking we can keep delivering the same same product? I think, it, yeah, and it's, but it's driven actually from the aircraft manufacturers. So um, I believe Airbus is looking seriously about taking the windows out, or the passenger windows out of aircraft because structurally it adds so much additional weight and there's so much additional engineering. You can make the aircraft actually a lot lighter and that digital displays are becoming so high resolution. We can actually create a display now, whether it's by putting a camera on the outside and projecting onto a quote-unquote window, you know, what is actually outside of the aircraft or some other kind of experience, we can do it in a very authentic and believable way to a point where you really don't need the window there. So, Ronnie, no doubt there's some people who want to go and actually stay in touch with you and find out. Listeners, um, in the show notes here, we're going to go put down uh, the different links uh, that Ronnie has, whether it's LinkedIn or possibly it's actually things like his Instagram accounts or the studio's Instagram account that's going to be better for you to go follow so that you're getting that smattering. Um, Again, thank you for spending some time and helping us to get a bit more of a peek into where a better future is. Thank you. It's a real pleasure.